Springfield there. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, veteran activist Alison Thorne discusses feminism, transgender liberation and the Stonewall Rebellion. And artistic director Romy Kupfer discusses new Holocaust education production, Singing Swallows. 3CR Well, radical women are hosting their annual event to celebrate the anniversary of Stonewall on Tuesday, June 29 via Zoom. This year, the theme is Feminism, Transgender Liberation and the Stonewall Rebellion. And I spoke with Alison Thorne from Radical Women all about it. Thank you, James. It's great to be here. I think that those three concepts are incredibly interconnected. And they're they're interconnected because the Stonewall Rebellion was itself led by trans women of colour. And if we then look at transgender oppression, transphobia, and we look at sexism, we can actually see that the source of both women's oppression, gay oppression and trans oppression are all the same. And I was so excited when I discovered that. It's one of those things that was a real light bulb moment for me, discovering that those things are actually linked and that in the earliest of human societies, the very, very earliest of human societies, Women were that they were matriarchal, the earliest societies, and they were communal. Women were incredibly important, were very powerful, and were respected leaders. Sexuality was free, there was no taboo at all on same sex sexual activity, and there wasn't the the rigid gender binary. And It was only at a later stage when private property emerged that the ancient matriarchies were overthrown by patriarchy. And when that happened, it was not only the uh, world historic defeat of women, as Frederick Engels uh, famously called it, but it was also it, it also provided the basis for a taboo on homosexuality and the the, the introduction uh, of a more rigid gender binary. And so I see 
women's oppression and trans oppression completely interconnected. We, we, we can't separate them. And the, the Stonewall Rebellion was just one of those events in, in history where these things came together and it really sparked inquiry as people began looking for for answers. Tell us about your life when you made those links and the era that it was in. Well, yes, it's starting to sound like a, a, a long time ago now, but I came out in 1979 and I feel very lucky to have been a, a, a teenager and coming into adulthood in that period. I was studying at La Trobe University and I got involved in the, the, the campus gay group and it really was an era when the, the spirit of Stonewall lived like it really was um, very much alive. In 1979, 10 years after the, the, the Stonewall Rebellion, the, the radical ideas of gay liberation that Stonewall had unleashed had not yet been tamed. They were still there. They were still very vibrant. And so at the time when I was first getting involved, I was working with people, my mentors, my people who I learnt from were the Stonewall generation and they were people who were fighting for complete liberation and they were people who were asking the question, why are gay men, lesbians, transgender people, women, what, like why are we oppressed? And when we begin asking those questions and uh, inquiring, we like it does um, get us to look at that longer view of history. And there's so much work that has been done by by feminist historians, by uh, queer historians, by um, Brilliant, brilliant people such as Leslie Feinberg, who wrote Transgender Warriors, people like Will Roscoe, who uncovered the, the two-spirit people in Native American societies and brought so many of their, their, their stories to light. So there's been incredible radical histories and anthropology which have really um, brought to light uh, a lot of that more hidden hidden history. So it really was a very inspiring time and the, the answers that I found when I, I first got involved, they made such sense to me and they, the, well, they made me basically into a lifelong Marxist feminist because once you learn these things and you really understand where this oppression has come from, you can't really unlearn it. 3CR.
Of course, you're from the organisation Radical Women. Tell us about their ideology and how it differs from radical feminists. Well, that's actually a great question, James. And it's one which Radical Women often has when we're meeting other feminists for the first time. If we're going along, for example, to something like International Women's Day, because Radical Women, we're a socialist feminist organisation. We're a socialist feminist organisation that uh, looks to the the leadership of the 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 most oppressed, and uh, we we describe ourselves as being the the left wing of the women's movement and the feminist wing of the left, and it's quite fascinating that often when we meet people for the the first time, one of the things that they really want to tease out is what kind of feminists are we? Um, Because we use the word radical to mean fundamentally changing society, changing it like at its its very roots, the capitalist private property system. But radical feminists have a different political ideology. Radical feminists um, are essentialist, biological determinists, and ultimately believe that women's oppression has always existed and that the problem is men. But when you actually understand that for most of human history, there, there was no women's oppression it hasn't always existed. It um, was brought into being with the, the, the rise of private property and uh, the, 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 the need to impose patriarchy in order to pass on inheritance. So it hasn't always existed and because it hasn't always existed, it need not, uh, it need not exist in the future. And so, like, our, our political ideas are very different to the political ideas of radical feminists because we believe uh, that uh, men and women and people of all genders not only can work together but must work together in order to forge the kind of society that we that we need. But one of the really, really interesting things is in recent times we've been having a lot more of these discussions because many, many young people are passionately committed to opposing the idea of a, a gender binary, uh, many uh, are gender fluid, people are committed to transgender rights just as we are in Radical Women. But what they want to make sure of when meeting us for the first time is that we're not TERFs. And if people haven't heard the term TERF, TERF stands for trans-exclusionary radical feminists and they're anti-trans and in fact uh, they believe that 
what trans people are trying to do is uh, erase lesbians, which is not what we believe in radical women. So we're proudly anti-sexist, anti-racist, anti-transphobic and anti-homophobic. And we welcome all women, cis or trans, and all non-binary people who agree with our political ideas, which are published in the Radical Women Manifesto, to, to get involved and to join Radical Women. 3CR. You're listening to an interview with Alison Thorne on 3CRs in your face. And, of course, the trans-exclusionary nature of radical feminists is very much the antithesis, isn't it, of the coalition that was there at Stonewall in 1969. Trans people were there. Uh, they most certainly were. And the most fabulous of trans people, I just love reading some of the incredible history that's been uncovered from that period. I love reading about people like uh, Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera. Marsha P. Johnson was uh, a black uh, trans person or a black, I think probably best to say non-binary in today's terms. Marsha um, described herself as a, a drag queen Sylvia Rivera was from a Puerto Rican and Venezuelan background, so a Latina trans woman. Uh, The two were both there at Stonewall, very close friends, were founders uh, of gay liberation in New York and remained committed activists throughout their lives. And they were there out on the streets with butch lesbians, with working-class queers, with with gay people from immigrant backgrounds, with all manner of uh, poor and oppressed people from New York who who came together to socialise at the, the Stonewall Inn on that fateful night 52 years ago. And, of course, you know, that coalition that was there at Stonewall and the and the ideology and the oppression that they were fighting, it seems like so much of that is still very relevant today with the uh, attacks that we're seeing in Eastern Europe, uh, with, the, with the passage of anti-trans and homophobic legislation, but also here in Australia with the looming return of the federal government's religious discrimination bill and, indeed, what Mark Latham and One Nation are doing in, in New South Wales. Absolutely. Look, I'm I'm so glad that you've actually raised uh, that issue because what's happening here with the federal government bill and Michaela Cash has in fact announced that she's planning to introduce it into the federal parliament in December and the, the One Nation bills are in play right now. But what... Uh, homophobic and trans, uh, like transphobic right-wing forces are actually doing in this country is they're, they're taking a leaf out of exactly what is happening in other parts of the world, as you say. 
And the current issue of the Freedom Socialist newspaper, which is a revolutionary feminist newspaper that Radical Women supports, has got a fantastic Radical Women column in this issue, which is looking at attacks generally on trans youth. And in the US, just this year, just this year, in 2021, there have been more than 200 anti-trans bills that have been introduced into state legislatures. So 33 US states have introduced anti-trans bills this year. It, it You know, it, it really, it, it's, uh, if it doesn't have listeners' blood boiling like it should. Absolutely, because, of course, those attacks are an attack on everyone, aren't they? I mean, the religious discrimination bill that Michaelia Cash is going to be introducing, that's an attack on a whole range of marginalised groups, not just our community, but also women, Indigenous people, the list goes on, people with disabilities. Oh, look, at, like, absolutely. Things like, uh, like a pharmacist could just say, I don't believe in the contraceptive pill. I'm not going to dispense it to you. And what if you're living in a, a small country town and there's, there's only one pharmacy? Like your employer um, could say to a, a, a single woman bringing up a child, a single mum, you know, like you're an abomination and could just bully her um, day in, day out and claim that there's nothing wrong with that because that's the employer exercising their religious freedom. Absolutely. You must be incredibly worried about the rise of authoritarianism around the world. I mean, you're a keen student of history uh, and you must be very fearful that that could in fact happen in Australia. Well, James, one of the things that I think is enormously important is anything that we win is only as useful for as long as we can hang on to it. And that really um, is one of the, the things with reforms under capitalism. We fight for them, we win some, but then we've got to struggle to, to, to hang on to them. There's, there's always a fight to try to take them back again. And so that's why it's so important that we need to get back to that vision that the Stonewall generation were fighting for. The Stonewall generation were not just fighting for acceptance. The Stonewall generation were fighting for liberation and fighting for liberation for the whole community. And because the LGBTIQ plus community is such a diverse community, fighting for liberation for the whole community means taking on the whole system. Everybody has to have a right to a living income, to a roof over their heads, to be, be free from racism. You know, that all of these things are things that are essential 
for for liberation and it's what the Stonewall generation was fighting for and what we need to be doing now is we need to be rebuilding, reforging those alliances and building the kind of winning fight back. And I've been quite inspired by some of the rallies that have happened uh, just this month in New South Wales to take on Latham's uh, Latham and One Nations bill, the the seventy eighters from the the Mardi Gras have been out on the streets along with uh, young trans and non-binary people fighting for this bill to be defeated, uh, and alongside them have been uh, trade unionists, people from other movements, and that's the kind of fight back that we need to be building. Absolutely. Alison, tell us about the event that Radical Women is hosting to celebrate the 52 years since Stonewall, since 1969, that fateful night that was so revolutionary and has just impacted so much on the emergence and uh, and the activities ever since of the LGBTIQ community. Well, uh, we would love everyone to join us for our Stonewall celebration, which we are co-hosting with Rainbow Atheists, and it is called Feminism, Transgender Rights and the Stonewall Rebellion. It will take place on next Tuesday, Tuesday the 29th of June at 7pm, and that's... uh, Eastern Australian Eastern Time, but given it's going to be happening via Zoom, wherever people are listening to 3CR and In Your Face from, um, they can log in and join us via Zoom. So uh, what people need to do is they need to register in order to get the Zoom link and they can find the information on our website, which is radicalwomen.org under the activities tab, or they can go to the Radical Women Australia Facebook page. Or if people are having trouble there, they can email us at radicalwomen at optusnet.com.au. Awesome stuff, Alison Thorne. Thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR. It's always a wonderful experience having you on In Your Face and hearing your insights. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you, James. 
delusion about children trapped in tunnels. That's how we got Aussie Q, it seems. And now everything else, I mean, now it's just a six-month pipeline from that to Australians who who, who live in this alternate uh, American fantasy land where they post about Donald Trump all the time. So its ability to via Save the Children stuff to get a whole range of different political persuasions in is what I found fascinating, you know. I talk a lot in the Aussie Q videos about how your auntie, she might not be that far right-wing now, but she might be quite left she might just be a spiritual hippie type but there's this broad appeal to things like save the children and great awakenings there's almost a hippie like quality to it particularly when you tone down the whole MAGA element of, of traditional Q and it's getting people in there but Q is not just a conspiracy theory is it? it is this conspiracy theory that is meant to drag you right after a few months so your auntie's going to be talking about make Australia great again in six months if she isn't right now listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Over him, moon speed. 
Swallows is a new Holocaust performance production currently underway at Theatre Works in St Kilda here in Melbourne and I spoke with its theatrical director Romy Kupfer. Thanks so much for having me today James. The Singing Swallows is a Holocaust performance for young audiences so what it is it's a show that I created in 2016 that explores four Holocaust survivor stories so parts of their stories that's appropriate for young audiences Um, And it's experienced through headphones with two performers on stage. And so it's about connecting future generations with Holocaust survivors and their stories in a way that is not traumatic and safe as, I guess, a first um, time to really start engaging with Holocaust stories in an appropriate way. I guess you must be finding that lots of young people don't have that sense of history, especially as there's so few survivors left. Absolutely. And, you know, it is quite, the content's really challenging, actually, to um, to communicate with young people. I know that when I was younger, I knew, like, my grandfather's a Holocaust survivor. So for me, I knew probably a bit too much about the Holocaust when I was young, and that was quite challenging at times, and still is. So I think that for me, it's so important that there's ways to connect with these young audiences that's safe, so that they can still connect with the survivors and their stories and then hopefully then build uh, an interest in who those people were and their full experiences so that when they're older they'll be able to hear more about that. How do you construct that safety? It's a really great question. So I created Singing Swallows as part of my honours at um, Monash University. So I spent a year researching um, and writing a thesis and creating this performance to look at the ethics around making a show about the Holocaust for young audiences. And so for me, the first step was, so I interviewed the four Holocaust survivors, one of which is my grandfather. And then I really only was able to use like a very, very small amount of those interviews for the actual script, just in terms of um, content, like safe content. And then so I put together the script in a way that 
If you have prior knowledge about the Holocaust, you will be able to fill in gaps. But if you don't know, then actually the words that are spoken um, are not traumatic. They're not difficult. They're, you know, it's still maybe a bit sad, um, but it's in no way traumatic or triggering for young people who don't know anything about the Holocaust or only know, you know, a little bit. And it's about, you know, the script. It's also about on stage. Um, the set that we use is recyclable materials, so boxes and plastics and toilet rolls and things like that. And so I decided to use that set um, in order to create a safe, familiar environment for all the young people in the audience. You know, kids play a lot with boxes and, you know, when you see muesli bar packets and things that you're used to seeing in the supermarket or in your home, in your pantry, that already creates a safer space. So it was really important to me that I didn't try and like recreate what it could have looked like. It's it's more about sparking the imagination of who these characters are and what their life was like for them at the time. What was the emotional journey like for you sifting through the material and determining what was safe and what was ethical to include? Um, it was pretty, listen, it's a very emotional show for me. Um, you know, when I, I actually didn't even really know that my grandfather went through the Holocaust until I was like 16, um, which is surprising because I went to a Jewish school and I had heard lots of Holocaust survivors speak, but he, um, didn't want to talk about it, which is absolutely understandable. So it was only when I put the dates together that I realized that, hold on a minute, I should start asking him some questions. So it was a pretty emotional journey connecting to him and hearing his experience and the experience of um, my extended family in France, as well as, um, you know, the listening to the full, the full stories and the full interviews, like it's really horrific events that happened. And so it was quite confronting. But I do feel incredibly lucky um, that these survivors gifted me with their stories because they're difficult stories to tell. Um, and then from an ethical perspective, you know, I guess as a, well, at the time I was much younger, but, you know, a younger Jewish woman, you know, for me, and I work a lot with young people. So just being so sensitive to the material, so sensitive to the people who will be coming to see the show um, and just being really rigorous with interrogating what should be in the show and what shouldn't be in the show. What can you share with us today, Romy, about your grandfather's story? Um, so he was living, so he's from Paris, and so he um, was living in Paris. He was a young boy and he had a baby sister at the time of when the Holocaust started and um, well, World War II started and his family owned and made a leather, like they made leather bags. So they live like I think maybe like very close, like above their shop or near their shop. Um, and actually my um, great-grandfather was taken away to a labour camp and and they, their shop was closed because Jews weren't allowed to trade and then um, and then my grandfather wasn't allowed to go to school because Jews weren't allowed to go to school and then that he was taken away to a labour camp and my grandfather actually bribed, um, sorry, my great-grandfather bribed the, the guards, the SS, um, to get out like he just said oh I just want to go see my wife and then I'll come straight back and then he left and of course never came back and then he um actually hid in a cupboard in their apartment 
um, for a long time. And then actually I think it was um, a week before the Roundup. So the Roundup was an event that happened um, during the war where in Paris where um, the Nazis uh, went to every single door and took all the Jews basically who were li- still living there and and um, escorted them into the velodrome and then locked the velodrome and um, it's there's a few movies about it it's um, quite challenging but basically a week before that happened because you know they didn't know what was happening you know it was a very um, uncertain and scary time for them and they actually um they just decided my great grandparents were just like we just have to leave like we're just going to do it we're just going to leave and they left and they went to hide in um on two separate farms in Lyon and uh, my my grandfather and his sister went to one and then his parents went elsewhere and actually that was that saved their lives actually from hiding and then they stayed there until after the war so that was really lucky for them um yeah and for me too I guess (laughs) I can really see why you're so mindful of the emotions and the ethics, considering that the young people that the production's aimed at were probably about the same age as as your grandfather during the Holocaust. Yeah, totally. And it's it was really interesting when I was interviewing the survivors and listening to the way that they were telling stories. Because, you know, the, this is from their experiences, like you said, from when they're young. And so listening, you know, like talking to them about their favourite foods and what hobbies they like to do and what their favourite subject was at school and, you know, all those things that actually are really relevant to young people no matter what, like, era we're in or year. Like, and for me that was a really beautiful connection, I thought, um, and to really understand who these people were and not just identify them by the atrocities that have happened to them. And, of course, the subject matter is so timely, isn't it, considering the rise of authoritarianism around the world. But also for listeners of this show, too, when you look at, you know, laws being passed in Eastern Europe that are so anti-LGBTIQ community. Absolutely. It's it's quite scary. Um, and I think that, you know, what's beautiful about this show and about the survivors that I interviewed was their messages at the end of every interview, I said to them, you know, what's your message? Like, what do you want me to pass on for you on your behalf? And they said, you know, it's like, it's about acceptance. It's about being proud of who you are. It's about being different and that being okay. It's about community. It's about love. It's, and you know, these are people who've gone through like experiences that you can't even imagine, yet they're still promoting such love and such celebration of diversity. And I think that you're right, it is so timely with everything that's happening in the world and in our country at the moment. We need to be championing these messages and supporting the diversity and supporting individuals to be who they are and celebrate that. You're listening to an interview with Romy Kupfer on 3CRs in your face. What are your observations about how the Jewish community in Melbourne is reacting to the rise of authoritarianism around the world? They must be very concerned. It must be digging up, you know, lots of memories and also lots of fears about what happened in the past. Yeah, I think it's it's really hard. Um, you know, our community is very diverse as well. So everyone, I'm sure, would have very different kind of perspectives on things. But in general, there's definitely been... a a big rise in anti-Semitism and I know that, you know, in the past few months it's been a bit scary. 
it's been a bit scary um, and there have been people are being a bit more mindful and a bit more conscious of, you know, public events and I guess sharing knowledge and exposure, which, you know, it shouldn't be like that. We shouldn't be living in this country being scared to be who we are. So you're finding in, in Melbourne there's a rise of anti-Semitism? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, there, yeah definitely, unfortunately. Um, but I think there has been already, it's been growing for quite a few years. Your production sounds like it must be attracting a lot of interest from schools. Can you tell us a bit about your connection with schools? Yeah, so it's a bit unfortunate that we're still in a pandemic <laughs> because it's very hard for schools to um, go on excursions and things like that. But I have been speaking to quite a lot of schools and we have actually toured the school, toured the show to schools in the past. Um, and there's a lot of conversation and support around the show um, and and what I love about the show as well in relation to schools is that it it's really relevant for different ages so we say you know the youngest ages that it's appropriate for is nine but then you know the, the older you get and the more content context you have actually the um, kind of deeper the show gets and there's more able to have more discussion around kind of the multiple layered meanings that are in the show and in the script, which is um, really wonderful and really special to be able to share the show with a diverse range of young people. It sounds like the show is going to attract a lot of attention from older people, especially senior citizens within the Jewish community as well. Mm. Yeah, definitely. We've had and. You know, it's really interesting actually to have created a show that is for young people, but I have had a lot of support and interest from older people. And I think, you know, um, people whose parents were, uh, are or were Holocaust survivors. And, you know, we're definitely at a time, like you mentioned before, where there, there aren't that many Holocaust survivors with us and there won't be for much longer. So, what are what are we doing to continue these stories and continue these intimate storytelling experiences for future generations? And I guess this is my my personal contribution to that. I mean, you're so mindful of people's emotions and, and the ethics attached to this. How do you deal with that after the production with the audiences? That's a great question. After the show, we have like a, we're going to have Q&As. Um, so we're straight after the show, we'll have um, a, like a conversation between me and the other performer who will be a child performer and then they're going to take a seat and then we'll open the floor for questions for anyone else um, to ask me. Um, and I think that, you know, I'm, I'm really interested to see how people are going to respond and I think there are many possibilities and I think that, you know, the relationship to Holocaust stories and Holocaust survivors um, is really deep and, and complicated for many people in our community. So I, I'm really interested to see how people respond and I'm really looking forward to having many conversations about that. Um, this is a work that I've made from my perspective but it is my contribution and I you know, I care what other what what other people's relationships are to it and how it affects them. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to hearing that sort of feedback. What can you tell us about the child actor and the process that you went through to select them? Sure. So there are actually two child actors, um, Sol Feldman and Flora Feldman. They're actually siblings. 
So in the past singing solos, I've performed with another act, like an adult actor. But in this iteration, I actually, um, I met Sol and Flora through um, some work I was doing in Coburg, working with young people in theatre. And they, um, and then we just connected. And then I thought, wow, it might be really interesting if they were part of the show. And so then I was chatting to their family and their uh, great-grandfather was also a Holocaust survivor. So there was that um, link, which I think is really important for the performers to have, you know, that, um, I guess, emotional and historical connection to the content of the show. And then I chatted to them and they perform a lot. They're wonderful actors. And, um, and so, yeah, and so they said yes and then we've been rehearsing. You know, like, like I said at the start of um, 2016 when I made this show, like it's for kids. So, you know, everything that we've been rehearsing, it's, it's what the audience sees too. You know, it's so safe. It's so appropriate. It's not, it's not a lesson. It's not a historical lesson about what happened in the Holocaust. It, it's, it's a, you know, theatrical experience of engaging with parts of Holocaust survivors' stories. And, and that's actually quite different. Absolutely. Romy, give us the details so people can rock along and see your wonderful production. So uh, Singing Swallows will be on, uh, from. we open on Wednesday, this Wednesday, the 23rd of June. Uh, we'll be on at TheatreWorks in St Kilda and we'll be on until Sunday, the 4th of July. So please come along. Fantastic. It's a wonderful production. You should be very proud of it, Romy. Thank you so much for talking to me on 3CR today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, James. I really appreciate it. 
Canadian singer-songwriter Sarah McLaughlin with Shelton. I do want to thank everybody who donated in your face for our Radiothon. We really appreciate your support. Thank you so much. Taking us out is Jebediah with Clint. We'll catch you next week on In Your Face.
In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook.